would turn with me in your copies of God's Word to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8, we're continuing our study, the book of Acts. I want to remind you where we find ourselves this morning. Uh, Stephen has been martyred as he was being pummeled with stones. He has this glorious vision of the Son of Man standing in heaven to receive him and defend and advocate for him. Stephen, before uh, b- before he goes to sleep, and you love that New Testament terminology used for uh, believers who pass away and go to be with the Lord, they fall asleep. Before Stephen falls asleep, he utters those incredible words. He says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he says, Lord, hold not their sin against them. They know not what they're doing. Stephen falls asleep. And he's buried. And then what we see is that persecution goes viral. Up to this point, it had only been the leaders and the apostles, those like Stephen, contending in public, in synagogues, for the name of Jesus, those are the ones who are targeted. But now the Sanhedrin has made the decision to nip this in the bud and to start with not just the top, but everyone. So now all in the church are in danger. And we're told the name of the architect who has been given the authority by the Sanhedrin to carry out this persecution. It's a man named Saul. We're told that Saul is ravaging the church. He's forcibly entering people's homes and dragging out men and women, committing them to prison, executing some. And as I was reading and studying this, there's an event from more recent history that was brought to mind. It's it's the event of Kristallnacht, or the night of broken glass that took place in November of 1938, where Nazi leaders unleashed a series of attacks on Jews in Germany, Austria, and the Sudetenland. Homes, businesses, and synagogues were vandalized, and thousands of Jews were taken prisoner. We've got something similar happening here. At this time, the church, I mean, just conservative estimates, the church was north of 15,000 people just in Jerusalem. And now you have systematic persecution that has exploded overnight. And the goal of that persecution is not to put them in their place, but to completely eradicate the church. Saul will later say when he's writing the letter to the Galatians. He will say, I I persecuted the church violently and tried to destroy it. That was the intention. But that intention is not realized. We saw last week that the church was scattered. Men and women take their families, few possessions, maybe just the clothes on their back, and they scatter We might tend to see this word as scattering as a 
destructive term, and we talked last week that it is not. This is not scattering as if you take a piece of pottery and smash it and then scatter all the pieces. Or if a, a flock of sheep is scattered without a shepherd. It's not that way. This is an agricultural scattering. Think of farmers sowing seed, going out into a field, throwing the seed, scattering it, and that seed will fall to the ground, but it will produce a crop and a harvest. That's what this persecution produces. It doesn't destroy the church. It spreads the church. This is what the church father Tertullian was thinking of when he said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. You can attack the church. You can persecute the church. You can shed blood of Christians, but it will only further the spread of the church. That same is true today. You want to know where the fastest growing church is in the world? Your response might be somewhere in Africa, and that's a good guess. The church is blowing up in Africa. You might say China. That's another good guess. Um, The church is spreading like wildfire in China. But the fastest growing area in the world. So this is, I I read an article. It's from April of 2021. And in this article, they, they put forward that the fastest growing church in the world is located in Iran. I want to read you a couple paragraphs from this article. The Iranian Revolution of 1979 established a hardline Islamic regime. Over the next two decades, Christians faced increasing opposition and persecution. All missionaries were kicked out. Evangelism was outlawed. Bibles in Persian were banned and soon became scarce. Several pastors were even killed. The church came under tremendous pressure and many feared that it would soon wither away and die. But the exact opposite has happened. In the last 20 years, more Iranians have become Christians than in the previous 13 centuries since Islam came to Iran. That's wild. In the last 20 years, there have been more Christians in Iran than in the previous 1,300 years. In 1979, there was an estimated 500 Christians from a Muslim background in Iran. Today, there are hundreds of thousands. Some estimate more than one million. According to the research organization Operation World, Iran has the fastest growing evangelical movement in the world. Guess what's number two? Afghanistan. The second fastest growing church is in Afghanistan, where Afghans are being reached in large part by Iranians. So you have Iranians crossing the border, going into their neighboring country, and bringing the gospel with them, being scattered. As we pray for Afghanistan, let's remember to pray for the church there. And also the church in Iran and those Iranian brothers and sisters who are taking the seeds of the gospel. Well, 
You might hear those two countries, Iran and Afghanistan, and think, well, that's a tough context to take the gospel. And it is. Philip also had a tough context. He was scattered to the neighboring region of Samaria. And it would have been just as hard there. Samaria was very close. If if you're thinking a, a map of the area, you've got Judea and Jerusalem in the south, and then You've got the Dead Sea and uh, the Jordan River, which goes up to the Sea of Galilee, and then the region of Galilee up top. And then you've got this big chunk of land in the middle. That chunk of land was Samaria. If you're looking at a map and you want to draw a straight line from Jerusalem up to Nazareth, you will go straight through Samaria. And yet many Jews would not. They would cross the Jordan River, go on the east side and travel down, and then cross back around Jericho because they, did, they wanted nothing to do with these people. They hated Samaritans. They viewed them as lesser humans. They were half-bred. And so they didn't want to go through their land or eat their food. They didn't even want to pray for them. And just imagine the offensiveness of Jesus' parable now of the Good Samaritan. You can guess that the animosity was mutual, and yet Philip is scattered, and he's planted in Samaria, and we're told that he proclaimed to them Christ. He expounded the gospel to them. He called them to come to Christ and to confess their sins and repent and believe and be baptized. And the reaction that we see is overwhelmingly positive. The crowds, we're told, paid attention to Philip's words. They saw the signs and wonders he did that testified that he was from God. We're told that many were healed and many who were under um, demonic oppression, those unclean spirits came out and there was much joy in that city. We saw that there's trouble in Jerusalem. There's persecution in Jerusalem and there are tears in Jerusalem. And and the, the, the hard circumstances, the hard providences in Jerusalem lead to joy in this Samaritan city. Well, this week, we're going to pick up where we left off. We're going to see what's happening in Samaria, especially with one man named Simon. But let's pray before we read our text. Father God, this is your word We esteem it above all other authorities, all other powers. Father, it is breathed out by you and given to us for our instruction and our edification and our so many things. Father, would you use it this morning for our good? Would we see the glorious things you have for us in it? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts 8 beginning in verse 9. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. 
But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You are neither part nor you have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now, when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Well, we zoom in on what's going on in Samaria, and the first person we see is this man named Simon, who is known throughout the city as this powerful sorcerer, this magician who would amaze the people with his magic. Now, I thought, what kind of magic are we talking about here? Is this simply parlor tricks or smoke and mirrors or sleight of hand? What are we talking about? I'm inclined to believe that there is real power here. I mean, everyone is looking at uh, this man and saying he's great. There, there's something going on. And we remember back in verse 7, the mention of unclean spirits, and that the power of God is driving them out. You have this land that is under satanic oppression. It's possible Simon is just an agent of that power. And this power comes from the occult and not from God. But whether that's the case or or no, Simon has grand visions of himself. In verse 9, we're told that he thought himself to be someone great. He would be one of those guys who would say, you know, if you hadn't realized this already, I'm kind of a big deal here. The people of Samaria viewed him the same way. In verse 10, we're told everyone paid attention to him. From the poorest, most culturally unimportant people to the bougie upper crust of society, everyone said Simon 
is the power of God that is called great. In church history and in writings, you'll see him named Simon Magus, which Magus is, I believe, Latin, which means great. It also means magic. So it's Simon the Magician, Simon the Great, that was his name. And unfortunately for Simon, his time in the spotlight has come to an end. With the arrival of Philip, Philip is attracting a lot of attention from the people of Samaria and even from Simon himself. We're told Philip preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. And the people believed Philip. They were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon believed, or so we're to think. He was baptized, followed Philip. Simon is amazed by what he's seeing. But that aside, this is an amazing message. An amazing message. Because the Jews thought that they were going to be the only people in the kingdom. The Samaritans, the Gentiles, those unclean people, they're outside of the kingdom. But Philip is coming to them, and he's preaching the kingdom of God. He's throwing open the doors wide, saying, you can come in. You who are seen as unclean, you can enter because of the person and work of Jesus. You know, there's that that joke, you can... You can plug different denominations in, but the, the way I heard it growing up, there's a joke about someone who is in heaven and they're being shown around and they're told to be quiet because there's a room that they're passing and the joke is, all right, the Church of Christ are all in there. They think they're the only ones here, so just don't say anything. Just walk by. So they'll just they'll keep thinking they're the only ones here. That was how the Jews viewed the kingdom. We're going to be the only ones here. And yet Philip arrives saying the doors are wide open. Through the name of Jesus Christ. Repent of your sins. Come, believe, be baptized. And you can join this kingdom. It's an important truth for us to remember. That their entry into this kingdom is not based on the fact that they are Jews or Samaritans. It is based... On their union with Christ. And we remember that today. That the kingdom of God is not tied to some ethnic identity or cultural identity or your pedigree or your blood. The Christians in the Middle East probably look and their, their, their culture is different from us and yet we're one in Christ. Paul writes in Galatians 3 that there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. There is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. That's the commonality we have being connected to our Lord. There's also another important point to make. The the Jews would have thought this was impossible. The fact that those hard-hearted... Wicked Samaritans, there is no way they could ever repent. There's no way they could ever believe. And I know that for some of you, there are people you know, people in your lives who are hard-hearted and stubborn and recalcitrant, and you are tempted to give up praying for them and say it's never going to happen. They're never going to believe. They're never going to come to faith. 
Well, the Jews would have thought the same thing. But the power of God is bigger than and stronger than our stubborn, recalcitrant hearts. So keep praying for that person. Keep having conversations with that person. Because our God can save anyone. So you have these Samaritan men and women responding to the gospel, believing, being baptized. We're told even Simon is baptized. This is a revival. It is a great awakening that is happening in Samaria. And news of this gets back to the apostles in Jerusalem. We're told that when the apostles heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them. But they had only been baptized in the name of Jesus. So the apostles get there, Peter and John, they lay their hands on them, and the Samaritans receive the Holy Spirit. There's some confusion here. Apparently, you have the Samaritans who are believing in Jesus. They've been baptized, but they've not yet been given the Holy Spirit. And they don't receive the Holy Spirit until Peter and John get there and lay their hands on them, and then the Spirit comes. Now, this makes us think of a lot of questions, especially if you are from a more charismatic Pentecostal background where there's this second experience of the Holy Spirit where you can be, uh, in their belief, you can be converted and you belong to Jesus and your sins can be forgiven, and yet you have not received the Holy Spirit or you have not received it in full measure. And that comes later. Well, that is not a view we hold. It's not a view that I believe is taught in Scripture. I think Scripture makes it plain that the moment a believer comes to faith in Christ, they are in possession of the Holy Spirit. The fact that you have faith in the first place is an evidence of the working of the Spirit. We cannot produce faith. Just as we cannot produce the fruit of the Spirit, which you will and should see in believers. Those are evidences of the Spirit's presence. Paul also writes in 1 Corinthians 12 that no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. So I'm not, I'm probably going to touch this just enough to frustrate you or leave you wanting more. But I'll just simply say that we do not believe in a, a second baptism of the Spirit. And we also don't believe that what is happening here is normative, meaning that it should be done today. When someone comes to faith, we lay our hands on them and I, I impart the Spirit of God to them. What we're seeing here is unique. In the book of Acts, we're seeing the the foundations of the church being laid in real time. You remember that command of Jesus, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And we're seeing these big foundation blocks of the church being laid in real time. 
We saw that foundation laid in Jerusalem at Pentecost. And yes, the disciples believed in Jesus. Yes, they'd come to faith. Yes, they'd been forgiven. But they couldn't receive the Spirit until Jesus returned to the Father and was seated on the throne. We see another foundation laid here in Samaria. We'll see one laid with the Gentiles in Acts 10 and 11. We see this command of Jesus taking place before us. And it's showing that there is one church. One church. There's one church for Jews, Samaritans, Gentiles. The same faith, the same spirit, the same blood covers their sins. And you see all these barriers and divisions coming down. And the establishment of one covenant community, and we are building upon that same foundation that has been laid once. We don't live in the same redemptive historical moment, so things for us will be different. Well, that's what the apostles come and do, and Simon is very impressed by their work. And uh, so impressed that he offers to pay them money to learn their tricks. Like, well, that's pretty impressive. Laying your hands on someone, bestowing the Holy Spirit. I'd like to add that to my arsenal. I'll give you some money for it. How much are we talking? We're going to talk a lot about this action of Simon Before we get there, we need to just stop and make sure we fully understand who the Spirit is. That is to say, the Holy Spirit is a person. Simon views the Holy Spirit as an it. Sometimes we can, in confusion, make the same mistake and view the Holy Spirit as an it, like some force, like, like gravity, or like the actual force in Star Wars. The Holy Spirit is not an it. The Holy Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. A divine helper who has been sent to the church by the Father and the Son. And so our relation to the Holy Spirit is not possessing some power. It's being in relationship with eternal God. And I love this quote from James Montgomery Boyce. I, I, I read this in one of my commentaries. Boyce says, quote, When we get this clearly in mind, then we can see that the object of our relationship to the Holy Spirit is not that we might have more of Him so that we can use Him, but rather that He might have more of us and use us. Does that make sense? So often we can be plagued with, I want more of the Spirit. I want more of the Spirit so that I can do this and I can do great things and I can can do wonders. It's the wrong focus. Our prayer should be that He might have more of us and use us. Do we see Him as a power that we can somehow acquire and use for our good? Or do we see him as he truly is, 
as God, and we belong to him. And he uses us for his glory and the good of his people. Simon is obviously confused about that. He tries to buy the Holy Spirit. And this action here leads to, he he coins a term from church history. I don't know if you've heard of simony. Simony is the practice in church history of buying and selling church offices. Now, today, you might not desire to buy a, a, a pulpit um, in the Presbyterian Church in America and serve in a place like Corinth. It might not be appealing for you, but especially in the medieval church, this was a very appealing thing. Um, instead of being... Uh, Instead of having to do some type of trade, you could have a very cushy, plush position in in a monastery or some cathedral or some parish, and all of your needs would be met and provided for. The state took care of everything, and so a lot of people desired these positions, so they would buy them. They would go up for sale. We've got a bishopric. It's uh, this much gold. You buy it, it's yours. This was a very common... You could buy a cardinal's hat. You could buy a parish. That's the historical definition of simony. Bribing officials to get an office in the church or selling that office. Now this, of course, is more broad than this. It's Simony broadly is the idea that God's blessings can be bought. Right? You ever thought that? You can buy God's blessings. We can pay God to give us what we want. I'm going to give God some money and ask him to bless me and my family. In the medieval church, you had people buying indulgences. And this is just the easy definition to, or the easy example to dunk on. You had a, the church selling indulgences, which were these little certificates. And if you bought one, this certificate proved that your sins were forgiven or that you would have so many years cut off your stay in purgatory. Or if you had relatives who had died and were in purgatory, you could buy an indulgence and and get them out. And there's this little song that was sung, as soon as a coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. By the way, that's what incited Martin Luther to write his 95 Thesis and then post it on the church door there in Wittenberg, Germany. Sell these indulgences. By the way, to fundraise for building St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. It's easy to dunk on Rome there, but we're guilty of this as well. Have, have we ever thought, especially... Maybe if you're working in a church or in an organization, you have the thought, oh, God would really bless us and we could really do his work if we could only raise more money. Or if I just give enough money to the church or to these ministries, God will really bless me and my family. Maybe it's a little harder to see Do we want 
spiritual power and blessings and gifts so that we would be promoted. That's what Simon wanted. He liked being in the spotlight. He liked everyone thinking he was great. And so he wanted this power to promote himself. Do we do the same? Oh, man. Preachers. Heaven help us. We want the ability to preach. To open God's word and proclaim it to the people. And if we aren't careful could be unwholesome motives that we would gain prominence, that we would gain a spotlight in our denomination, that someone might want us to write a book or we would get invited to conferences and get to sit on the stage with all the other big boys. When we give money, we are to do so from generous hearts, Not in some quid pro quo, I do this, you do that. Because God's grace cannot be bought. This should be obvious to us, and yet we fall into this. That's the idea of simony. Then we see Peter's response, and Peter comes in hard. He comes, we'd say in our vernacular, Peter comes off the top rope. Verse 20 May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain this gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right with God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. Those are some strong languages, some strong language, some strong words. I mean, the very first thing we see, may your silver perish with you. Now, that's a nice euphemism. You know what Peter is really saying? He's saying, Simon, you and your money can go to hell. That's what he's saying. You think you can just come in and buy the Spirit of God to boost your own platform and credibility and appearance. You and your money can go to hell. You have neither part nor lot in this matter. He's revealing the state of Simon's soul. And earlier we're we're told that Simon believed. And obviously we, we do not believe that someone can be covered in the blood of Jesus and come to a saving faith in him and fall away. We're told in the Gospels... That no one can snatch us out of the Lord's hands. We will never fall away. There is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. The grace we have is a a gift that was given to us. It's not something we earned and it is not something that we can unearn. But we see that in Simon's case, he he never had genuine faith. He never truly believed. He was just attracted to the show. He was attracted as as a performer. He was attracted to the amazement of Philip. And then there's this 
So his belief was false. And there's this, this gospel call to repent of your wickedness, that you'll be forgiven. And you must repent because right now, Simon, you are in the gall of bitterness. You are trapped in, in wretchedness. You're enslaved to your iniquity. When Peter says your heart is not right, he's literally saying your heart is not straight before God. It's crooked. You have a crooked heart, a false faith, and it needs to be changed. And we see the stark difference here because at, at the end of the chapter because you have so many Samaritans who hear the gospel and respond rightly and they receive the Spirit. And the Christians then go from village to village to village taking this gospel, but it's not the case with Simon. Because after, after receiving this stinging rebuke from Peter, what does Simon do? Does he repent of his sin? No. Does he cry out for the Lord to have mercy? No. Does he say, forgive my unbelief? Help my unbelief? No, he doesn't do that. He says, Peter, pray to the Lord for me so that nothing you said will happen to me. It's like, yeah, I don't, I don't really like the things you said. How about you pray that doesn't happen to me? It's a cop-out. It's no real genuine faith, no repentance. He's, he doesn't fall on his knees and say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. He says, yeah, I don't want that to happen. How about we pray, Peter, that that doesn't happen? You see, it, again, this is not real saving faith. This is fire insurance that he wants. He's still out for personal gain. He's out for personal gain in the beginning. Show me how you can do this. And he's out for personal gain here. I want protection. I want to escape punishment. And we can see that this man only wants the gifts and blessings of God. He does not want God. He just wants the gifts, the blessings, the protection, but he isn't so much on the God that gives them. He wanted to be saved from the penalty of sins, but he's not repenting. We see that real contrition, genuine repentance is grief, and heartbrokenness for having sinned against God and offended God. It's not saying you're sorry because you got caught and you don't want to be in trouble. And there's a warning for us here at, at the end. We know from church history that, well, from if we believe the accounts of church history, Simon the magician never repents. Justin Martyr tells us that he journeyed to Rome where he was worshipped as a god and there was a statue erected in his honor. Irenaeus, the church father from Lyon, speaks of Simon in Samaria as the father of all heresies. Simon of Samaria, the father of all heresies. Um, he's especially has very influential in Gnosticism. That's the last we hear of Simon of Samaria, Simon Magus, Simon the Magician. And we need to realize and take very seriously the fact that it is possible 
for us to claim to be a believer and be baptized and be among the people of God and then fall away. We see in the New Testament, Demas, Hymenaeus, Philetus, all of these are are those who are in the church, in the covenant community, and yet fall away. We need to hear that it's possible to taste of the things of God and to make a profession of faith and have that faith not be genuine. Think of one of the most terrifying passages in Scripture, Matthew 7, 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. We need to see the reality of false professions And ask ourselves very honest questions. Are we simply after fire insurance? Are we simply wanting to avoid punishment? Are we only wanting the blessings and the gifts of God? Is our belief just head knowledge that we can parrot or has the gospel changed our hearts? Now, it is absolutely true we will struggle with sin. We will battle sin. There will be months or just seasons, moments and seasons of frustration as we struggle towards holiness, but there will be a struggle towards holiness. There will be visible fruits of the Spirit. So we need to ask, are those there? Have you humbled yourself? Have you brought your sins and your imperfections to Him? Have you asked for the power to live for Him and His glory and not your own? Have you honestly said, Lord, I believe you. I am your possession. Use me for your good purposes. In the hymn we're about to sing, it's one of my favorite lines in all hymnody. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. I'm not bringing any things in my hands. I'm not bringing any payment for the grace I've received, simply clinging to the cross. I'm going to end with Psalm 115.1. Not to us, O Lord. Not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and faithfulness. Let's pray. Father God, I ask for clarity on this topic. This is a serious topic, this topic of false profession and false belief. Father, I ask for the assurance, the working of your Spirit, which is present in all your people, that he would give us, as your word says, that he would give us assurance that we have been born and we are children of God. 
Father, give us a, a love for your word. Give us a love and obsession for your character that we would desire to see your face above all. And that when we think about heaven and glory, we would be those who could say, we could go make a list of all the pleasures we can imagine, all the benefits and possessions and gifts. But if we don't have you, heaven will not be heaven. Father, would we desire you above all? Would you produce fruit within us? Use us as you used Philip, as you used Peter and John. Use us. We are your possessions. Father, we live for your glory. There will be hard seasons. There will be time when our faith feels more like a flicker or a spark as opposed to a torch. Father, we are still yours. Our faith may be as thin as a spider's web, but as long as that thread is connected to Christ, it is saving faith. Father, produce this in us. Give us your spirit. Make us quick to repent and run to the cross. Remembering those words, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.